Chapter Six, Part C of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Six, Part C. August twenty ninth. The last three days have been filled with terror and suspense. It began when a patrolling shepherd on the Isle of Skye found a suspicious clump of grass. All conditions favored the invader. The spot was isolated, communications were difficult, local labor was inadequate. The exhaustion of the fuel supply made it impossible to fly grass fighters in, and men had to be sent by sea with makeshift equipment. Happily, there were two super-cyclone fans at Lochinvar which had been shipped there by mistake, and these were immediately dispatched to the threatened area. The clump was fought with fire and dynamite, with the fans preventing the broken stolons from rooting themselves again. After a period of grave anxiety and doubt, there seems to be no question this particular peril has been averted. Not a trace of the threatening weed remains. The Queen went personally to Westminster Abbey to give thanks. August 30. Work on the Sisyphus proceeding slowly. I have decided to keep my own cabin intact and have the adjoining one fitted for a writing room. Then I can accompany F on her experimental excursions and not lose any time on my book, which is progressing famously. What a satisfaction creative endeavor is. August 31st. The bill for construction of Burlet City was debated today. The PM stated flatly that the grass would be overcome before the city could be built. Cheers. The honorable member from South Tooting rose to inquire if the right honorable member could offer something besides his bare word for this. Groans, faint applause, cries of shame, no gentleman, etc. The Home Minister begged to inform the honorable member from South Tooting that Her Majesty's government had gone deeply into the question of the so-called vertical cities long before the honorable member had ever heard of them. Did the honorable member ever consider, no matter how many precautions were taken in the building of conduits for a water supply, that seeds of the grass would undoubtedly find their way in through that medium, or through the air intakes, no matter how high? Dead silence. The Honorable Member from Stoke Pogus asked if the opposition to his Honorable Friend's bill wasn't the result of pressure by a certain capitalist concerned principally with the manufacture of concentrated foods. Groans and catcalls. The Chancellor of the Exchequer inquired if the Honorable Member meant to impugn the integrity of the government. Cries of shame, no, unthinkable, etc., if not, what did the honorable member imply? Obstinate silence. Since no answer was forthcoming, he would move for a division. Result, the bill overwhelmingly voted down. Since the sky excitement, everyone is inclined to be jittery, and nerves are stretched tightly. When I told F she had missed a great opportunity to test her formula in Scotland, she blew up and called me a meddling parasite. This is pretty good coming from a dependent. Only my forbearance and consideration for her sex kept me from turning her out on the spot. September 1st. Encouraged by the sky episode, a group of volunteers is being formed to attempt an attack on the grass covering the Channel Islands. More than can possibly be used are offering their services. 
I subscribed ten thousand pounds toward the venture. Preparations for moving to Kilkenny almost complete. Even if F gets going by December and the Scottish repulse is permanent, I believe I shall be better off in Ireland until the first definite victory is won against the grass. September 5th. The grass moved again, and this time all attempts to repulse it failed. It is now firmly entrenched on both the Orkneys and the Hebrides. Terrible pessimism. Commons voted no confidence, 422 to 117, and my old friend D.N. is back in office. September 6. Sisyphus almost ready. Find I can get a crew to work for wages when not in port. Luncheon at Checkers. P.M. urges me not to leave England as it might shake confidence. I told him I would consider the matter. September 7th. F. says she is ready to make new tests and what is holding up work on the Sisyphus. Replied it was complete except for my cabins. She had the effrontery to say these weren't important and she was ready to go ahead without me. I pointed out that the Sisyphus was my property and it would not sail until I was properly accommodated. September 8th. I shall not move to Ireland after all. The grass has a foothold in Ulster. September 9th. The Irish are swarming into Scotland and Wales, impossible to keep them out. September 10th. Donegal overrun. September 12th. On board the Sisyphus, wrote an incredible amount, still beyond me how anybody can call the fashioning of a book work. We left Southampton last night on a full tide, and are now cruising the channel about four miles from the French coast. It is quite unbelievable. Under this tropical green blanket lies the continent of Europe, the home of civilization. And the bodies of millions, too. Except for a few gulls who shriek their way inland and return dejectedly, there is not a living thing in sight but the grass. I have reserved the after-deck to myself, and as I sit here now, scribbling these notes, I think what impresses me more than anything else is the feeling of vitality which radiates from the herbaceous coast. The dead continent is alive, alive as never before, wholly alive, moving with millions of sensitive feelers in every direction. For the first time I have a feeling of sympathy for Joe's constant talk of the beauty of the grass. But in spite of this, the question which comes to my mind is, can you speak glibly about the beauty of something which has strangled nearly all the world? Later. Sitting on the gently swaying deck, I was moved to add several pages to my history. But now we are approaching the narrower part of the channel, and the sea is getting choppy. I shall have to give up my jottings for a while. Still later. F. finally picked a spot she considered suitable, the remains of a small harbor, and we anchored. I must say she was over fussy. One cove is pretty much the same as another these days. Possibly she was so choosy in order to heighten her importance. Repetition of the involved etiquette of inspecting the intended victim and turning on the sprays. Only this time the suppressed excitement anticipating possible success made even the preliminaries interesting. 
Miss Frances and her assistants retired for a mysterious conference immediately after the application, and I stayed up late talking with the captain till he was called away by some duty. It is now nearly two a.m. In a few hours we shall know. September 13th Horribly shaken this morning to find the grass unaffected, even wondered for a moment if it were conceivable that F would never find the right compound, that nothing could hurt the grass. Had I been ill-advised in not going more seriously into Burlet's vertical cities? F, very phlegmatic about it, says another twelve hours of observation may be of value. She and A rowed ashore over the runners trailing in the water, and with great difficulty succeeded in hacking off a few runners of the sprayed grass. I thought her undertaking this hazard an absurd piece of bravado. She might just as well have sent someone else. Disregarding her rudeness and not inviting me, I accompanied her unasked to her laboratory cabin. She laid the stolens on an enamel surface table and busied herself with some apparatus. I could not take my eyes from these segments of the grass. They lay on the table, not specimens of vegetation, but stunned creatures ready to spring to vigorous and vengeful life when they recovered. It was impossible not to pick one up and run it through my fingers, feeling again the soft electric touch. Miss Frances's preparations were interminable. If she follows such an elaborate ritual for the mere checking of an unsuccessful experiment, no wonder she is taking years to get anywhere. My attention wandered, and I started to leave the cabin when I noticed my hand still held one of the specimens. It was withered and dry. September 17th the enthusiasm greeting the discovery that F's reagent mortally affected the grass was only tempered by the dampening thought that its action had been incomplete. What good was the lethal compound if its work were final only when the sprayed parts were severed? F seemed to think it was a great deal of good. Her manner toward me, boisterous and quite out of keeping with our respective positions and sexes, could almost be called friendly. During the return to Southampton, she constantly clapped me on the back and shouted, It's over, Wiener! It's all over now! But it isn't over, I protested. Your spray hadn't the slightest direct effect on the grass. Oh, that, that's nothing. A mere impediment, a matter of time only. Time only? Good God, do you realize the grass is halfway through Ireland? That we are surrounded now on four sides? A last-minute rescue is quite in the best tradition. Don't disturb yourself. You will live to gloat over the deaths of better men. I urged the PM to be cautious about over-optimism and giving out the news. He nodded his head solemnly in agreement, but he evidently couldn't communicate whatever wisdom he possessed to the BBC announcer, for he, in butter voice, spoke as though Miss Frances had actually destroyed a great section of the weed upon the French coast. There were celebrations in the streets of London, and a vast crowd visited the cenotaph and sang Rule Britannia. September 18th Hoping to find F in a calmer mood, I asked her today just how long she meant by a matter of time. She shrugged it off. Not more than four or five months, 
she said blithely. In a month at most the grass will be in Britain. Let it come, she responded callously. We shall take the Sisyphus and conclude our work there. But millions will die in the meantime, I protested. She turned on me with what I can only describe as tigerish ferocity. Did you think of the millions you condemned to death when you refused to sell concentrates to the Asiatic refugees? How could I sell to people who couldn't buy? And the millions who died because you refused them employment? Am I responsible for those too shiftless to fend for themselves? Am I my brother's keeper? If fifty million Englishmen die because I cannot hasten the process of trial and error, the guilt is mine, and I admit it. I do not seek to exculpate myself by pointing a finger at you or by silly and pompous evasions of my responsibility. If the grass comes before I am ready, the fault is mine. In the meantime, while one creature remains alive, even if his initials be A.W., I shall seek to preserve him. As long as there is a foothold on land, I shall try on land. And when that fails, we shall board the Sisyphus and finish our work there, somewhere in the Atlantic. You mean you definitely abandon hope of perfecting your compound before England goes? I abandon nothing, she replied. I think it's quite possible I'll finish in time to save England, but I can't afford to do anything but look forward to the worst, and that is that we'll be driven to the sea. I was appalled by the pictures her words elicited, a few ships containing the survivors, a world covered with the grass. And when success is attained, we shall fight our way back inch by inch. But this piece of bombast didn't hearten me. I had no desire to fight our way back inch by inch. I wanted at least a fragment of civilization salvaged. September 19th F. has not been the only one to think of the high seas as a final refuge. The London office has been literally besieged by men of wealth eager to pay any price to charter one of our ships. I have given orders to grant no more charters for the present. September 20th The enthusiasm is subsiding, and people are beginning to ask how long it will be before they can expect the reconquest of the continent to begin. BBC spoke cautiously about perfection of the compound for the first time, opening the way to the implication that it doesn't work as yet. Added quite a bit to my manuscript. September 21st Mrs. H., in a very dignified mood, approached me, said she heard I had made plans to leave England in case the grass threatened. She asked nothing for herself, she said, being quite content to accept whatever fate Providence had in store for her, but would I take her daughter and family along on the Sisyphus? They would be quite useful, she added lamely. I said I would give the matter my attention, but assured her there was no immediate danger." September 22nd. Grass on the Isle of Man. September 23rd. Ordered stocking of the Sisyphus with as much concentrates as she can carry. The supply will be ample for a full crew, F staff, and myself for at least six months. End of chapter 6, part C.